Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to those who live in Cape Town, but also those who have come from afar as well. It is my pleasure this evening to introduce the first speaker, Chris Alden, and let me just read a. It's it's in your it's in your program as well. Just a little bit about Chris before he takes the mic. Chris is Professor of International Relations at LSE, where he also directs the Global South Unit and the African Program of LSE Ideas. He is also the Head of Global Powers and the African Program at the South African Institute of International Affairs. He taught at the University of Witts from 1990 to 2000, established the East Africa Project in 1992, and has held fellowships at Cambridge, Tokyo, um, Ecole Normale Supérieure, and the University of Pretoria. He's the author and co-author of a number of, of books, including The South and World Politics, China and Latin America, China in Africa, and co-editor of, editor of The China Returns to Africa. Japan and South Africa, as well as articles in internationally recognized journals. He has contributed to research, conferences, and publications on the changing role of China and Africa since 1992, and China and Latin America since 2007. He has conducted consultancies for the World Bank, the Africa Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the CLSA, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Standard Bank, and Rand Merchant Bank, among others. So it is my pleasure to introduce Chris, who's our first speaker, and he will be speaking on Africa Rising, assessing the role of South-South cooperation. Once Chris has completed, the floor then will be open to all of you, and, and I think as um, Craig has said earlier on, we expect people to be very critical and also very engaging for that half an hour where the questions will be open to the floor. So, Chris. Thank, thank you very much, Jean. Thank you for, for those remarks. And going to see, yes, in, in the old days we shuffled paper. I brought paper up, but now it's about PowerPoint <laughs> issues. Um, let me start by talking about uh, uh, the subject matter, bringing, bringing to our attention uh, the, the changing discourses on Africa rising and the role of South-South cooperation, in particular emerging powers, in shaping the Africa Rise story. That's, that's what I want to discuss today. Um, two images I've put forward here. One is from uh, suitably faded, one from, uh, of The Economist from the, the uh, 1990s, uh, which talks about infamously the hopeless continent. And you can see from the imagery, it's a continent depicted as, as one in, in conflict. Uh, uh, a decade later, we see another image, that of Africa rising, and we see hope uh, embodied in, the, in, the, in that image. That image uh, and the gap between them are part of a story, a story that, that emerging powers through South-South cooperation played a role, and I, I would argue a, a, an important role, perhaps even a vital role in fostering. Um, so, so let me... Uh, uh, let me try to fill in some of the picture that we have there, some of the gaps. What's happened? Um, Africa rising as a phenomena has been a product, as the picture suggested, previous picture suggested, of, of an end of conflict. It's not a continent without conflict, but it's a continent that experienced, especially in the Southern Africa re region, uh, the end of, uh, of much conflict and the introduction of stability. And that very, that very stability began to, to provide the foundation for economic growth, for economic activity to take place that had, had not been uh, uh, part of the picture in the past. With that, we saw the emergence of a rapid, uh, uh, increasingly 
rapid uh, economic um, uh, GDP growth. We saw the uh, introduction of of uh, in investment from 19, from 2006. Uh, Africa moved from being an aid, primarily receiving aid, to uh, as its uh, as foreign as a source of its foreign uh, um, economic investment to one which fo- uh, which was primarily investment oriented. So the monetary transfers of the pre two thousand and six were dominated by aid uh, transfers, and uh, after two thousand and six, we see uh, investment picking up. Um, We also have the rise of of what the AFDB, the African Development Bank, likes to characterize as middle class. Now, middle class, I'm going to problematize this this comment of theirs, this this statistic, but let's for the moment live with that uh, and and recognize that uh, uh, some of the growth has indeed uh, reached and created a, a, a group of, say, they estimated 330 million Africans who are, uh, who, who are defined as consumers, consumers with 2 to $20 a day spending, uh, spending power, uh, consumers that are changing and reflecting the changes and changing the, the uh, market appeal of, of an Africa. Okay. Behind a lot of these statistics, as I said to you, uh, is an argument that I would say puts at the center the role of emerging powers. And I put BRICS up here. BRICS uh, wasn't uh, around at at that particular time, but just in the sense that it's indicative of the kind of um, uh, countries that that are involved in in propelling South-South cooperation. First and foremost, uh, that transformation that we've seen has relied on demand from BRICS countries, okay? Demand for commodities that, uh, uh, in, in particular, uh, resources, and, uh, energy resources and, and uh, mineral resources. And these have played a part. The OECD uh, DAC had uh, estimated uh, perhaps 2% of, of Africa's GDP was related to or connected to the rise, uh, um, the rise in demand from, from developing countries in, in Asia in particular. China uh, leading the role, leading the, the, the uh, charge, as it were, in re-examining Africa and looking at it not as Europe traditionally, the United States had traditionally as a burden, but rather thinking of it as an opportunity, an opportunity, investment opportunity. So this is one portrayal, and a a celebratory portrayal. At the same time, we we have to recognize that there's another discourse out there on what emerging powers and what South-South cooperation has done, one which underscores not... Uh, uh, the, the central role of, of uh, what were it does underscore focus on on the role of emerging powers, but in so doing it 's a, it's a critical one, one that suggests that emerging powers are nothing more than, than states engaged in trade relationships which which are old trade relationships. traditional powers have been engaged in much the same resource extraction finished goods, manufactured goods coming back. So those are the, that's the present, those are the uh, images that uh, uh, people are understanding of the role of emerging powers uh, in, uh, in Africa. One is celebratory, one which sees it as an alternative, and another one which has underscored it or tried to uh, characterize it as, as uh, predatory at, at, its, at its extreme. Now the data on this is uh, the, is is a little bit uh, out of date, but the basics uh, of of the of this are I like the image and, and the basics of the distribution of emerging powers and their respective engagement with the continent remain pretty much the same. With the with the Chinese dominating uh, um, uh, economic uh, activity, uh, investment both in an investment side, but also in terms of of uh, uh, lo- concessional loans and other forms of, of economic engagement. Um, we have the Indians uh, and, and smaller power, uh, Brazilians and then smaller uh, states, Turkey and, and Korea, taking up positions within, uh, within Africa, leading trade and, and indeed participating in investment across the continent. 
What's, why have emerging powers made a difference in the debates around the rising Africa? How have they contributed? I think first and foremost, they draw from their development country experience. And the first thing that that, that, uh, that development country experience told them in approaching the continent, in approaching the op- uh, and recognizing an opportunity in that continent, was around the question of infrastructure. Right? Uh, you can... Uh, uh, While the 1990s, the era of the hopeless continent, was one where there was maximum penetration, maximum uh, uh, um, dominance, if you like, of of discourses on the part and and, uh, uh, investment opportunities on on the part of um, Western powers, the um, uh, during that period, the focus was on policies, on getting the policies right, getting the prices right, looking at macroeconomic uh, uh, stability questions, arranging, rearranging, examining the policies settings within which investment was supposed to uh, flow and follow. Much of the logic of structural adjustment programs was situated around this particular uh, um, uh, framework. Get the policies right, and in the investment will flow. Well, it didn't flow. It flowed not from uh, not north south, but rather to East Asia and China. When emerging countries, with the capital and the gains that they had, came came to to Africa, they recognized the very from their developing experience the. Uh, at home, they recognized the first requirements of development were not in place, and that was infrastructure. We've talked about infrastructure, uh, I mentioned infrastructure uh, before, but it's, it's a crucial, the hard infrastructure rather than the soft policy infrastructure, which I'm not dispensing with, but I'm just saying in terms of what emerging powers contributed was a, a recognition of the centrality of getting the, the hard infrastructure in place, that markets can't function if you can't communicate, if you can't move goods, entrepreneurs can't take action if they don't have the, the basic, uh, 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 basic foundations for interacting uh, at markets. Markets, at physical markets, physical goods can't move. So they re-engaged with the reality of development, okay, which had been lost uh, in, in the discourses in the, in the late 80s and, and in the 1990s, and, and I'm afraid contributed to uh, that, that image, that hopeless image. The second thing they did, and this is a picture of, of uh, what, from the AFDB report, the 2000. Uh, 11. The second thing they did was that they recognized ju- not just resources, but they recognized markets in Africa. They saw that what, they char- what the AFDB characterized as middle class consumers, I would say middle class rather, I would say they were consumers, $2 to $20 a day, something that did not motivate or move uh, uh, traditional uh, businesses to invest and, and open up uh, 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 businesses in southern Afri- in, in Africa in sub-Saharan Africa, um, they recognized in that an opportunity. Again, based on their experience, they knew that in their own experience at home, people with two dollars a day or, or or more were were consumers, and that they were markets that you could sell think, goods into those markets, and you could make a profit, and you could begin a process of of. Uh, 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 increasing economic activity around that. So that middle class, uh, those 330 million consumers that, that the African Development Bank identified were, an, uh, were from the perspective of, of uh, emerging powers an opportunity. They were an opportunity which they could and were willing to invest in and, provi- and uh, uh, um, uh, indeed profited from. My, the, the last slide that I'm going to show uh, is, brings us to the question of what the impact of emerging powers in beyond the economic uh, stage, beyond that stage, and which is, this is a, a Mo Ibrahim uh, economic uh, intelligence unit uh, depiction of the degrees of democratization across the, camp, the continent. How significant is the impact of uh, emerging powers, which come under the banner of no conditionalities, which have explicitly uh, 
indicated that they're not interested in the shape of the political systems in Africa, but rather they're committed to the mar- to accessing the markets, accessing the resources and the like. They portrayed their engagement in those terms. What are the implications for uh, the, the democratic uh, uh, conditions and, and the improvement of democratic conditions across the continent? Is it not going to be debilitating? Is it not going to erode the, the, the uh, um, political basis for democracy across the continent. Certainly these questions exercised uh, analysts both in the academic community but in the policymaking community um, in, uh, um, in, in Europe, in the, in the United States, and Africa as well. We saw, um, <clears throat> in fact, if, if you wanted to encapsulate much of the work on, on uh, emerging powers during this first period I've, I've described between, say, 1995-96, when we begin to see China and others move initially into the Sudanese uh, oil sector and then beyond that into Angola and, uh, and, and other parts of the continent, followed by a Brazil, followed by uh, Korea and, and others, India. Um, the question that occupied researchers and people in the, in the academy was to what degree are these emerging powers and their no con- non-conditions, uh, the application of, non- of no conditionalities, non-intervention, etc., to what degree are they going to change Africa? To what extent are they going to alter the policy choices of African governments uh, such that do they have, because it's certainly in the case of China most as the most prominent of the trading partners, certainly the expectation was that it would have a a, a negative effect. Uh, It would be seen as a a country that would bolster uh, pariah regimes, uh, provide diplomatic cover for Sudan or or perhaps even a Zimbabwe, um, and that this would begin a rollback, if you like. It would have a negative effect across the continent. I think, especially when it comes to, to China, that something, something very different has indeed happened. Something very different. And that, that difference is that rather than changing uh, Africa, that Africa is changing China. African agency is changing China. Uh, and by that, I mean, if you consider that the China of 2003, the one that had entered into one of the most volatile, uh, uh, long-standing civil wars on the continent in Sudan, um, had, an, on the basis of no conditionalities, non-interference, we don't want to interfere, right? it found, it was dragged, kicking and screaming, if you like, but dragged in center stage uh, 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 into a form of engagement, and increasing and deepening engagement, initially around the, the reputation, initially around its reputation, which suffered damage uh, from uh, from being associated with the conduct of a government that it, the, the 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 government in Khartoum. Um, this, of course, the particulars of Sudan. Some might might argue. Um, uh, Explain and the particular time period, the build-up to the to the Beijing Olympics, uh, can explain to a certain extent the acute attention that China gave and the resources they began to turn to, to give over to solving that particular problem. Okay, to try to uh, bring in uh, to support the the African the the, uh, the AU the African Union peacekeeping operation 2004 initiated, and then uh, later uh, uh, putting forward at the UN Security Council uh, an endorsement of and support for the hybrid um, UN AU force, allowing the U- the International Criminal Court China allowing the U- International Criminal Court to uh, name shame and go after four Sudanese individuals. These are, very, these are things that uh, are, are part of the, the change that deeper involvement in Africa uh, made on China's approach. And part of the argument that, from my perspective, suggests that African agency and African environments are, are beginning to alter the uh, conduct and, and policy choices 
of China, a second uh, of, of China and other emerging powers. Another example was the financial crisis in Brazil. If we uh, Brazilian firms Odebrecht in uh, uh, one of the larger construction firms based in, in working in Angola, uh, found that uh, uh, the uh, Angolan government was unable to pay. Uh, for the uh, provide the, the the finances to pay up on a monthly for a few months uh, in Angola, and they had to reassess their involvement on that basis. They stopped building for they stopped doing their work for some time. They no longer were adverse to to risk in this setting. So what we begin to see is a cautionary note and something that begins to look a little a kind of convergence with some of the policies approaches that we see from other external pro, uh, other. External External powers. Um, the third uh, example that I, I would put forward is, is the introduction of a fairly widespread, possibly nominal at this stage, but I, I would contend deepening roots in the, in the conduct of, of um, firms. Chinese Indian firms have been fairly notorious in some settings uh, in not providing for safety, uh, uh, health and safety concerns for some of their workers. That, that initial, the pressure brought to bear uh, in countries like Zambia uh, on, on companies that behave in that way have begun to change the thinking of those companies and certainly pressured governments to begin to introduce uh, policies which reflect um, uh, the local laws, reflect local concerns around how to conduct uh, business in a particular country, and in so doing have begun to uh, bring uh, ch uh, emerging powers more closely in alignment with African needs in the first instance on the base of a basis of African agency and secondly more global closer to global standards when it comes to uh, how one conducts business uh, in, in, uh, uh, in, in general both at home and, and afar so um, for my to, to, to summarize uh, I think that uh, the cr that um, Emerging powers, China in particular, but, but the others as well, have played a crucial role in Africa rising. They've changed the debate on development. They broke the donor cartel, if you like, on ideas of what constitutes development. And they've enabled us to reimagine what we think Africa is. Not a problem, but an opportunity. Uh, an opportunity for, for which uh, uh, for market growth, for investment, and hopefully that arrangement will not replicate previous arrangements of traditional north-south uh, uh, um, uh, ties of commodity exchange for finished goods. That African rising Africa, African assertiveness governments uh, in Zambia, amongst others, will provide the kind of pushback necessary to get the right deal, so that African governments. Can, can truly emerge and sustain the kind of growth that we've seen over the last uh, decade or so. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris. We have about 20 minutes, so um, I think we should just get started with hearing some comments from the from from the floor and as you heard earlier on um, be as critical and be as robust as you possibly can in your comments as well as your questions and we'll throw those questions and comments to to Chris so if we can take a round of um, of, of people to speak, and um, shall we say about three or so? Three votes for me? Three? I, I, I'm somewhat less enthusiastic about the uh, robust questioning thing, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait to hear what people say. All right. Um, anybody? Yes, one, two, and at the back. Can you thank maybe say who you are and what institution you come from? Yeah, thank please. you very much. My name is Anthony Twangana from Makere University. Uh, in uh, 
a regime which is hybrid, democratically, Uganda. <laughs> yeah, my question goes back, uh, back to the first two slides you saw that, that uh, the pictorial description you gave uh, of a hopeless continent and a rising Africa. In this context, who is responsible for that failure and who is responsible for the growth or the rising of Africa? Number two is about uh, the democracy. We have not seen a full democracy in Africa. And therefore, my question is, where can we draw examples? Do we have a full democracy anywhere in the world uh, that we can learn from? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, Daniel. Silk Political Futures Consultancy. Um, uh, thank you for the, for the introduction. I just would like to ask you, the, uh, the GDP statistics and the great increases that we've seen, the double-digit increases that we've seen across the continent in the last decade or so, can you make any comments about um, the reliability of these statistics? I know there's a controversy surrounding the official figures that often come out from uh, many of the African governments, and I'd be very interested to know your view on the, um, the hard data that certainly is publicized uh, secondly, you mentioned um, the issue regarding uh, the middle classes, the 2 to $20 a day figure from... Uh, uh, can I ask you, just uh, do you think those middle classes at 2 to $20 a day, is that sustainable? Uh, in other words, is there a vulnerability to a so-called middle class at 2 to $20 a day? And how, uh, uh, how, how solid uh, should we assume that that middle class will remain, um, given question marks, perhaps, on my first question, regarding uh, the uh, reliability of the overall data coming out of the continent? Thanks. Thank you. And the last question in the stand. Thank you for a very informative uh, talk. It's uh, Alex from the Birth Centre. I have a question about China's role in the infrastructure development on the continent and just the idea of bringing in uh, Chinese labor uh, as opposed to using local engineers and local builders and the job creation that could be as a result of that infrastructure development uh, as well as uh, the effect, say, of manufacturing goods um, you know, being brought into the continent from the likes of, say, India versus displacing local uh, tradesmen as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Can you take it from there? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, let's see. Uh, work, working, working from from the beginning. Uh, who's responsible for the change? I mean, w one thing is there's a, it's, there is an image issue there, and I think that's been one of the first things one had to crack the mirror, as it were. That that image did not allow people to think about Africa in in uh, a way as 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 a, a, a potential site for uh, investment opportunity and the like. So who changed it? I mean, Africans changed in the first instance, right? Governments provided the some some. Uh, 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 support and, and, and policies and what have you, but I do think I, I, my, I make my case that the emerging powers themselves were part of the of that change. That it was both on a demand side in terms of they were part, their 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 growth and their own growth and their own uh, resource needs began to focus on uh, re refocus on uh, sites. 1993 is an interesting date in terms of China. Uh, one moves from China moves from an oil. Import, uh, oil exporter to an oil importer, and that certainly concentrated the minds of people in the economic, uh, uh, in, in, in the, the councils of power, as it were. And, part, and from that, we see the first reaching out to environments which they were unfamiliar with, the Sudanese in, in, and, and the Angolan and, and so on and so forth. So I think that I would argue that part of that change, first and foremost, is, low, is, is from Africans and, and choices and experiences that have, have occurred there, but that, uh, that the, the emerging powers provided an important uh, uh, accelerant to that process that has enabled others to look differently at, uh, at um, uh, the, 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 uh, both Africans themselves and, and also um, uh, in the West. Um, you, there was a question about uh, how valid. I'm sorry, I, didn't have my note, I can't read my notes. How valid the. Uh, 
Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, how valid was okay, the, yeah, yeah, is okay, the data? Right, right, from, right. From, yeah. I mean, I can't comment to, to say that at least that uh, as far. I mean, it varies state to state. They're better. They're better. Uh, better captures of, of, of the data in some states and less less good ones in other settings. That there's an overall relative rise, however, that's uh, recognized uh, 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 pretty much across the board. Um, the durability of this, I think you made a very, very important point that on 2 to $20 a day, there's no, you can't even talk about a, a, a parachute or, or anything like that. You're, you know, the end of the week, things change. You, you, could, be, you could be in a very different set of uh, circumstances. So that is one of the social safety net is, is, uh, uh, is, is a problem in these, for, for these uh, uh, people living at the margins. Um, one wants to... Uh, uh, believe that policies will be put into place that will allow this growth to be sustained and that they can graduate, as it were, into a more solid foundation. We see indicators of this. We see the consumptive patterns, if they're a measure of, of degrees of, of spending and, and the choices of, of investment in high, higher-end goods are being uh, they're recognizing uh, uh, automobiles, reassembly, uh, uh, so refrigerators and this sort of thing. But um, investments in education, we can see that across uh, some, of, some of the uh, uh, lower to middle income countries. But I think you're right, the vulnerability is there. Uh, a shock to the system could pitch people back, and that's one of the worries, and that remains. And with that, the thing that I didn't mention is inequality. Um, it's not at the. It's not in. It's in South Africa, of course. It's a. It's a very big and, and recognized problem. It's an emerging. Uh, it's a, a problem in many. Most of the emerging uh, powers that we've talked about here. Not all of them. A, a Korea, for instance, falls outside of that, and and it's distinctive in other ways. But uh, that that vulnerability also is a driver for the durability of this form of engagement. Uh, uh, how how this will affect the kinds of choices. That, that they make. Um, for instance, uh, uh, emerging powers uh, like uh, China um, it's a, are as much, their policies in Africa are as much a product of domestic circumstances. Oversupply of construction firms, for instance, is one of the reasons why there's been an encouragement of a, of a going out if you, of policy for uh, construction firms to give them opportunities to exp- and expose them to new markets where they could bid contracts, et cetera, to, to move out of that crowded, localized market. So I think these are important um, uh, drivers, and that means that the domestic within the emerging powers themselves is one of the determinants of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, the success uh, and the continued engagement of South-South uh, South, um, uh, uh, developing countries. Um, on infrastructure and labor, uh, I, I'm going to answer this in a fairly straightforward way. African governments, I, I would hold most culpable uh, for uh, uh, the use of Chinese labor. Um, these are deals that are done. They make decisions about the structure of, of who's going to do the, 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 um, the infrastructure project. They, they make, South Africa has been quite uh, resistant to having Chinese labor involved in any, there are not many Chinese, uh, Chinese projects here. Um, Tanzania, according to studies, was also uh, that we've seen it was also quite uh, um, uh, uh, felt it was very important that there was local content in terms of, of hiring labor uh, management and the like. I, I think that if you go and look at the data, the actual go out there and see do the work and look at some of the studies, you'll see that Chinese labor is indeed a feature, but it varies case by case, and the key determinant as to why it varies is the degree to which the host governments argue for and insist upon uh, a local component. So the, I, I think that that uh, needs to be uh, uh, recognized when we, when we offer that criticism, a valid criticism indeed, but nonetheless recognize the source of that. Um, I'm sorry, one other comment I think that's worth... Chinese, Chinese government, I'm sorry, Chinese industries have traditionally been competitive. People have talked about the, 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 the fear of, of uh, deindustrialization of Africa. The textile sector is the classic sector that people point to. Uh, the degree to which uh, jobs, on, uh, tens of thousands of jobs have been shed in countries like South Africa, smaller numbers in, uh, in uh, Nigeria, Kenya and the like. 
Um, and this is, this is indeed one of the, the, the problems that, that uh, 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 bedevil the relationship. At the same time, we have to recognize this is within a global context. In some ways, the Chinese presence is just the, is just the present, the current face of globalization in this argument. It's not about China per se. And that was very clear here in South Africa when there was a voluntary restraint imposed on, on uh, uh, um, the export of textiles, clothing, and, and shoes into South Africa. What happened? We had Vietnamese, uh, a Bangladesh uh, firm step in and fill that gap. So, in fact, it's not deindustrialization, maybe, and high, high levels of competitiveness are part of the globalization story, which, from which, uh, which has driven the growth in, in emerging economies and indeed may, in, may benefit uh, in the same sort of way if uh, as prices within China, as prices within some of the core emerging powers go up and, they, and there is a little evidence of relocation of some industry to African sites, certainly offshoring uh, some of their stuff into, low, into Southeast Asia, but there are some indicators of, that they are doing the same or considering doing the same in uh, uh, parts of Africa as well. Thanks, Chris. Can we have another round of, of questions? Is that a follow-up? Okay. Anybody else? We've got one person. Yeah, you in the middle. <laughs> okay, one here. All right, we'll take one there and one in front. Uh, <coughs> Uh, I'm Mukhtar Jonas. I'm the Honorary Consul for Mauritius. And I just wanted to correct you that we, if you look at the picture there, we're the only country with a dark spot where we're full democracy. <laughs> and to, just to pick up on what Chris was saying regarding uh, textiles and uh, how things are complex. And, you know, uh, African countries have to take advantage of situations. And this is a bit of what... Look at Mauritius took advantage of the Chinese quota. When this happened, we were exporting $26 million to South Africa. Today we're exporting $265 million. That's a tenfold increase from an opportunity. Of course, we've been in the textile industry for a long time and whatnot. Um, the other thing is, um, my main question would be on the field of uh, education. You know, it's been identified that usually the issue with uh, growth in Africa would be stunted by the lack of skills and quality education. And what we're doing now in Mauritius, we went on an ambitious program called Study Mauritius, where we're thinking, how would 50 countries be able to put universities, educational system, training institutes to sustain growth? Um, and how would they be able to afford to go to LSE or to the, the US and, and, or wherever there's quality education, which is so expensive? So what we did, we embarked on a situation where we're having joint ventures with India, France, Australia, South Africa, and other countries where we're trying to get them to set campus in Mauritius. And we've done this with France already, and normally the cost of education, a quality education, I mean, you know, Mauritius is British in terms of our um, matriculation, Oxford and Cambridge. We very much follow your curriculum, and we are at par in terms of your education system. So we're limiting it to 7,000 US dollars, where we want everybody from Africa to say, listen, let's create an opportunity. We can afford $7,000 and get a good education. So that's what we're doing, study Mauritius. It's ambitious, but we just want to know, is the model sustainable? How can we improve on this? You know, we always look for partnerships and fine tune to make this uh, a success and a reality as our part of contributing towards African growth. We are an African country. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Okay, question over here and one over there. Thank you for the talk. I'm Masana Ndinga Kanga from the University of Cape Town. I have a question specifically about the global political economy, which you touched on, and the role of manufacturing in the development agenda. And I'm more curious about whether there's an environment to take advantage of developing manufacturing in the face of unequal trade barriers and sometimes trade restrictions that disallow that, specifically in the context of Africa. And my second question relates more specifically to South Africa as an emerging partner in the continent. 
acknowledging diversity, how do you see that in unequal power balance between South African corporates moving into the African continent? Is that a beneficial move, or can we see similarities between that and Chinese, Indian, Brazilian investment? Thank you. Thank you. Question. Amaoli from um, Ghana. I want to ask almost a follow-up question from the person who spoke immediately. I want to find out how do we effectively manage the balance of the relationship between like, the emerging economy like China and um, a country like Ghana? Because in Ghana, we're almost becoming skeptical about the Chinese presence, especially in terms of illegal mining. And um, people are concerned because there's almost, in terms of river bodies in and around the country, um, the river systems have almost been destroyed because of illegal mining. And of course, we have a part to play, but I want to find out from you, how do we manage it? Because at a point, it's almost spiraling out of control, and they had to take very firm decisions to manage the presence, especially illegal mining. So if you can please comment on that for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And right at the back... Thanks. Andrew Fleming uh, from the Cape Town Partnership. I just wanted to find out, uh, we talked a lot about um, other investment in Africa um, and growing South-South collaboration, but from the point of sustainability, and I think this kind of alludes to the discussion that um, the gentleman from Mauritius raised, what is the sustainability in terms of what Africa is doing in investing in other BRICS countries particularly, but other South-South countries? Um, It's nice to have a lot of investment coming in but what about our investments that we're making in other partnerships um, in China and India and Brazil to make sure that we're not just waiting on people to invest in us, that we're actively investing in other opportunities as well? Okay, thank you. Is this the last hand that I see? And I'll take this one and I'll ask Chris to, to conclude then. Okay. My name is Colin Sajman from University of Ghana. PAD psychology. Um, From a hopeless state to a hopeful rise in Africa, I see the intervening variable as change propelling the development. Have we been able to manage this change? That is my question. Then the second one. Is democracy ideal? From whose perspective do we measure and categorize democracy as full, hybrid, flawed, among others? Thank you. Thank you. Chris, do you want to use this mic? Okay. Um, First, for my colleague from Mauritius, um, I I enjoyed a a very... uh, 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 um, successful and, and uh, eye-opening visit to the University of Mauritius and can endorse what you're saying about the educational resources that are, that are available there and the willingness to, to partner up with, with institutions. I think you said it all better than I, so I, will let you, I just will add that comment to it to, to say that uh, I have been the beneficiary and certainly uh, the LSE has a long-standing history, as you would know, with, with, with Mauritius itself. Um, you had you'd spoken about the globalized context and whether manufacturing is a is a route to to development with particular to the African context. I mean, our traditional understanding of of, uh, of the development trajectory suggests that low end, low cost textiles. You know, you know the sort of you ladder up from there. So there is that that sense whether the whether the trade frameworks of today are open enough with the barriers. I think that the, the, the barriers in that particular sector are, are very limited. I think that uh, in other sectors you may see more, uh, more um, uh, substantive obstacles, some, t- some of them non-tariff barriers to, to uh, uh, manufacturing. I would argue in the African context, that's not the first point of departure uh, in, in terms of the problems. The problems, I think, were our infrastructure, uh, lowering the, co- the, the co- transport costs uh, uh, and therefore enabling manufacturing to be competitive. It isn't competitive on, uh, by the time it's, uh, it, it leaves the continent. It's, it's uh, had to bear and add on quite a number of, 
of, of, of other um, uh, uh, costs, externalities, and what have you. So I think that that, that from my perspective, uh, getting that right and why I'm enthusiastic about the emphasis on infrastructure is that will allow Africa to, that levels the playing field so that Africa can take advantage of, of the opportunities that would be available in, in, in areas, sectors like manufacturing. Um, the uh, uh, bundling together a number of comments. I, you talked about South Africa uh, operating potentially like a China or an India uh, in other parts of the continent. Certainly that we've seen people, Kenya in particular, there's been a lot of pushback over the years to, uh, to South African attempts, to, uh, South African breweries, if one wants to consider South African breweries at this state, at this stage, a South African firm. But uh, um, uh, so, so I, I, I'm conscious of the fact that South African firms, large investors generally, have have a reputation and are seen uh, in many ways to be part of, an, of, of that emerging power uh, uh, group of countries, not just as African, but somehow distinctive and different. Uh, and and uh, um, I think that that affects their ability to uh, operate successfully. We see partnering up as one of the strategies they've employed in order to, with local, local um, actors, as one of the strategies to uh, transform that brand, if you like. Others... Uh, uh, there are other strategies have been applied as well, but I, I think this will remain one of the challenges for South African uh, corporates to operating in Africa is to is to um, distinguish themselves uh, from uh, uh, other other uh, investors and and to sell their story as a as a pro African development story, not just a South African um, uh, success story in a given country. Um, linked to that, to the other con uh, question, I would say is um, a fundamental problem with all the emerging powers, most of the emerging powers vis-a-vis -vis Africa, is that uh, the framework, we have a challenge, which is economic asymmetry, right? Significant in many cases, the Chinas in particular, <laughs> against a, a, a balance of, of a commitment, shall we say, to political symmetry. That, uh, so we're, we're all equal, right, as states, and the, operation, the operating position of, of many of, uh, of, of the emerging powers is to present that, that unlike we're, we're not paternalistic, we don't carry the baggage, that we have, dis, we have discussions that are, that are uh, 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 amongst equals. And yet the inequalities, to quote Julius Nereri, he says China, the relationship between Tanzania and China is one of the most uh, unequal of equal partnerships. Uh, he tried to, to, to summarize and capture that and the dilemma that that faces, and I think that it's a dilemma for both sides, both sides of that. How to manage uh, uh, this in such a way that you don't, uh, uh, deter that a relationship doesn't deteriorate. I, I find, um, say, the Brazilians in, in Mozambique, a lot of local criticism about some of the conduct uh, of, of Brazilian firms, the Pro Savannah. Uh, issue is less celebrated today than it was perhaps a year and a half ago, two years ago, because of some of the, the, the activities. Obviously, the Chinese and Indian firms have experienced the same. And uh, finding ways of addressing it through CSR, through diplomacy, etc., is one of the routes. But I think there's, especially with the Chinese, and since they're the largest of the emerging powers involved, I think it's worthwhile mentioning that, the, that in a sense, there are, two, there are two levels to this. There's an upstairs story and a downstairs story. The upstairs story is about diplomacy, state-owned enterprises, uh, concessional loans uh, from the, the XM Bank or the China Development Bank. I think that's a manageable form of the relationship. The downstairs story, however, is about communities and how they experience and understand what's going on. That's when someone mentioned the Ghana, the example of the illegal miners. We had a, 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 a substantive number of, of Chinese illegal migrants moving into a sector uh, in, in Ghana and, and the, with the, with the uh, almost uh, predictable outcome of, of conflict between uh, that community and the local community uh, in, in Ghana. And that sort of story, that is very difficult for for the Chinese to manage, that downstairs story. And my, my argument would be that for emerging powers like China, they've been able to manage that asymmetry 
uh, economic asymmetry, political symmetries uh, reasonably well in the first decade or so of, of um, engagement in, in Africa. But on the back of these kind of experiences locally, that this, this is actually one of the biggest challenges they face, how to address the social interactions the, uh, at, at the community level. And that, that's, that is now no longer, uh, no longer can this be uh, driven from above. It's a relationship that is being shaped in response to uh, uh, the, the, the ground, the actions and, and, and interpretations from below. Look at the Zambian government. The Zambian government of today came into, on, on the back of a ticket, which in part was an anti-Chinese an anti, uh, ticket. Right, you, that, you 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 have to recognize then, as an emerging power, that you you need to do something more significant and better in order to uh, in, in order to sustain keep the relationship and your economic interests in that country in that economy more, or put them on a sustainable basis. So I think this is going to be the story of the next decade: how to manage that 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 uh, divergence between the upstairs relationship, which can be quite good. And if you like the downstairs community level relationship, um, let me just one other ah perhaps you, you, I think you took up the challenge of the the, the uh, harder artist of questions <laughs> with respect to to democracy and, and democracy ideals and that sort of thing. Um, first, that indicators Mo Ibrahim is uh, recognized as, as uh, uh, a, uh, if, if perhaps challenged now and again, and appropriately so, nonetheless recognized as, as locally defined and produced uh, uh, definitions of what constitutes variations on democracy. And so I, that was why I used that particular um, uh, presentation. Democratic ideals, I, I, I would like to believe that there are uh, no, there are no ideal democracies, but there are certainly uh, uh, committed citizens who, who uh, hold governments uh, to, accountable, to be accountable and uh, provide for the services that they promise. That, that, that to me, uh, and, and when they don't, they, they find a regularized, constitutionally informed way of, of, of uh, getting rid of them. I think that keeping to those very, very basic themes, I think, is... is uh, uh, an important feature of what constitutes democracy, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't look to any given state to that, that has a, a monopoly on that particular form. They vary in terms of practice and, and historically. Um, African states, South Africa, have very have been very uh, has had episodes of deep democracy and deep uh, deeply the opposite, as we all know. So uh, South Africa is no no model in in, in that regard either. Um, but uh, anyway, let me, let me leave it at that, at that. Okay. Thanks so much, Chris, and to all the contributions we had from the floor. Um, we've run out of time for, for, this, for this first um, address, but there's also an opportunity after the second address. So I'm sure Chris will be available for further conversations when we have tea and something to nibble on outside. Thank you so much for your participation. Um, Edgar?